Hello and welcome to the podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick. I ain't rich, but I damn sure wanna be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. Hello, I'm really happy today to be introducing you to Rich Carey, who I've heard on a couple podcasts in the past. And for any of you military listeners, uh, especially people still on active duty, I think you will find Rich uh, very inspirational. Uh, one thing that stands out in my mind is that it, while he was on active duty, purchased over a period of time at least uh, 20 homes, and I want to say that he paid for them in full, but he um, he basically saved his money. He was very conservative about how he went about it, and he advises people on a range of financial things through a blog and on his website, uh, Rich on Money. But uh, he's I guess it's evening for him. He's 14 hours ahead of me today, but uh, Rich, can you hear me five by? Yeah, I hear you. Yep. Thanks for the introduction. Well, welcome. I don't know enough about you, but I, I know enough to know that you're going to be inspirational, whatever you teach us today. So I really appreciate you taking the time uh, this evening, I guess, for you. I want to uh, kick it over to you to uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, military background and your real estate investing background, and then we'll get into it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You touched on some of the major points about me. So I've uh, I've been in the Air Force now for about uh, 18 and a half years. I'm currently in Korea and I'll be moving this June. I'll be moving actually back to Montgomery, which is Montgomery, Alabama, which is where my properties are. But I currently own 20 single family homes. They are all paid off. And uh, I bought most of them in the period of time between 2013 and 2000, I guess I'd say about 16. So over the period of about three years. But of course, the money that it took to buy them was money that I'd accumulated uh, throughout my entire uh, life, really, you know, from uh, from starting in the military in uh, in 2000. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Well, that is very impressive. Most of us can't even uh, imagine having the discipline to uh, save up that and then methodically go about buying these uh, properties and not leveraging them at all, which is something we'll get to in a minute because I want to better understand your philosophy on that. But um, but right out of the gate here, Rich. I'd like to give the listeners, uh, you, you know, this is geared towards uh, military members and veterans. I think you're the sixth interview or seventh that I'm that I've done. You're the first active duty member, uh, uh, so thanks for your service. And uh, that's e- even more impressive to be doing that while you're doing your full time job in the military. But I want to give the uh, the listeners an early warning signal. I call it early warning systems online. For those people, they get hyped and excited about going into real estate investing. And unfortunately, 
the very first tip I gave on my very first monologue was from you. So that was the tip of not telling members uh, not to just buy a place everywhere they go as a rental. So mm-hmm. you can't use that tip, but I want to see if you got another lesson learned that you might uh, give active duty and veterans. Okay. You're saying, okay, don't use the one of buying at every assignment. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up that one. That's probably one of the biggest uh, fallacies out there. You know, <laughs> there's that, that, there's that mythical, um, you know, rich retiree who supposedly bought a house at every assignment. And uh, that person does not exist because that person usually is in a lot of trouble. Uh, but I want, I want to sort of add on to that. Okay. I want to maybe talk a little bit of, bit more about why that's a bad idea and why people get in trouble when they buy at every assignment. And it has to do with, um, I guess I'd, I kind of flip that on its head and say that I'd tell uh, people in the military, you're better off never buying a house if you're in the military. I know that comes, that probably comes as a shock, you know, from a, a real estate investor like me. But you're better off renting at every single assignment. That would be like the smartest move from a financial perspective. And then my one caveat to that is this. The only time you should ever buy a house in the military is if you can run the numbers and buying a house you know, at that particular location that you're going to live at for one to three years, if that house will make a good rental when you move away in one to three years, in other words, it's going to cash flow well when you move away. That is the only time you should ever buy a house. And so people want to buy a house for lots of reasons. You know, your, your husband or your, or your wife, you know, wants to build a house. You like this neighborhood. You like these schools. You're thinking about appreciation. Uh, none of these are good ideas. The, the only time it's a good idea is not, not if, but when you move away in one to three years, is that house going to cash flow well? And that's kind of my criteria that I think military members need to to sort of look at as the only time that they should ever purchase a house on active duty. And so uh, to add on to that, I don't want, I don't want to make, make this question take up too much time, but we'll probably have to get into the 1% rule to explain this. But high cost of living locations like Honolulu, where, where Doug Norman is from, uh, who I think you uh, interviewed earlier, Honolulu. Los Angeles, San Diego, Washington, D.C., now even places like Denver and Seattle. These places are never good places to buy houses. You should not buy a house in a high cost of living area because it is going to be a waste of money. It is going to be a bad call. Uh, That would be uh, my sort of uh, next level of advice. That is uh, good. I'll take it. The no high cost of living, that uh, definitely stands out. I'm going to Honolulu uh, in less than two weeks, by the way, for the first time. So, do you mean for an assignment? Or, for okay, work. Well, you're you're done. Right? Okay. I, well, I still support the uh, the military. So, uh, I work at an Air Force base, Hanscom Air Force Base, about a hundred miles south of me, as a support contractor and as an engineer. Oh, that's great. I mean, I love Hawaii. It's one of my favorite places. I often look at real estate when I go there, uh, but I just I know I'm not going to buy. It, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. No, that's great advice. And I, I won't rewind back to the 1% rule. You you want to go uh, sign up for Rich's uh, newsletter. He's got lots of advice there. And, and he gave the three reasons or three three of the main reasons why you don't do what he just said uh, before he talked about the high cost of living area. And we talked about the 1% rule uh, on my 
my monologue. I'll say my first episode. So thanks for uh, clarifying that, Rich. I want to pivot because um, I know this is a something you have expertise in. And I think I know the answer, but I, I want to ask you, when you're looking at properties, I, I like to think of four different ways to go about investing. I'm sure there are more, but I, I think some people are opportunity-based investors who will go anywhere. Some people yeah. look at geography based on having looked at the marketplace and they want to invest in this one certain area uh, like you ended up doing or or types of areas. Some people gravitate towards a certain asset class. Uh, you know, you're doing, you, you have all these single family homes. Most of the people I talk to are focused on syndications in terms of my own investing. And then I would say niche investing, like uh, short-term yeah. rentals or whatever. So of those four, uh, which of these do you favor? I, I know what you've done, so maybe that's the one, but do, do you think uh, one, one or more of these or all the above, or what do you think? Why, why did you settle in on your niche? Wow, which which do we think? I, th- I think it's it's always going to depend on your personal situation. I mean, obviously, you kind of favor. First of all, I believe that any of those can work. Like at different points, I feel like there's when you when you have these real estate cycles where there's there's you know lows and highs. You're talking about the height of the market or the market like just crashed and it's at the bottom again. I kind of feel like that you know different approaches can work at different places in the market. Uh, but another thing that's very important to me too is like, it's where you are right now. Um, I think that the most, I'd say that the most important thing is you've got to figure out how management's going to work for you. And of course, with syndication, that might be different because with syndication, you might you might set it up to where you're truly passive. But you've got to figure out management. Uh, you know, And so the ideal situation for me is that I'm doing something, you know, within two hours of where I'm living. That would be the best situation possible. Now, that's very, very hard to do in the military. Um, so obviously, what, what, I, what I sort of did was when I was living in Montgomery, Alabama, I had the chance to get to know the area. I was only there for 10 months. Had the chance to get to know the area quickly. Had the chance to vet management companies and vet contractors and real estate agents and basically, I set up everything that I would need once I moved away so I'd be able to have a team that could manage all of this stuff for me from afar that I had already vetted and trusted, plus I already understood the geography of the area. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, but, no, it does. But that's kind totally. of, okay. Yeah, yeah but, that, but that's kind of what I did. Um, and I did. And, and that's just kind of like, it's what worked for me at the time. Like I showed up in Montgomery, Alabama with no intention of investing, not necessarily very excited about coming to Montgomery, Alabama, because I'm from you know, I'm from Southern California, a much bigger city. But when I showed up there and I realized that I could make a lot of money, you know, investing in single family homes there, I said, well, great, I'm going to int- invest in single family homes. When I tried to figure out how to do multifamily there, and didn't really find any deals, I said, well, I guess I'll stick with single family homes. Um, but if you kind of ask me what's ideal for me, I'm l- really looking, because, because I want to scale quickly, uh, you know, the idea of having 60 or 80 or 100 single family homes seems like it'd be very difficult. You know, uh, it's just hard to keep buying single family homes one at a time. It's a lot of work. I would love to buy a 20 unit property or a 60 unit property or a hundred unit property. If I bought a hundred unit property, that would effectively, you know, five times the units, the the amounts of property I buy, 
I, I own in one transaction. Uh, so I've been leaning towards multi-family uh, properties. It's just that whether or not I'll be able to find that in Montgomery, Alabama or a surrounding area is more the issue. There's my very long answer. But it's a good answer. And I know you know this uh, better than I do, Rich, but a lot of the guys that are big syndicators or even, uh, I'll go back to the first book I read in the 90s, uh, around 2000, ABCs of Real Estate Investing with Ken McElroy. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things he points out in there uh, is the is the management structure that you can have all your management in one area. And I think uh, in talking to other single family owners who own multiple single families, uh, where some people have gotten in trouble is they've spread out their management in different cities. And yeah. uh, I think that's a big, big uh, issue. Right. That's another thing that doesn't work well, you know, with the buy, buy a house at every duty station concept is it, if you actually owned one house in five different locations, the, you know, the sort of, how are you going to set up, you know, management, in five different locations, and what are the chances that you're going to be successful in five different locations with all aspects of that? Because there are several different aspects. Uh, that's pretty tricky. Yeah, I think that could be a nightmare. And I and I work with guys. I, I work with military members and veterans, and more so than not, what I hear are horror stories or DC area horror story or Boston area. Uh, yeah. So it makes sense what you're saying. I am curious about. I'm going to ask you about this. So the owning. Owning free and clear, and my wife and I have debated this a couple of times over the years. So I yeah. want to get your philosophy. The just why why you do you ever think about leveraging those houses? I guess or or what's your philosophy on owning outright versus uh, leverage? So I think my I feel like my philosophy on this keeps evolving. Uh, I it's it's kind of funny because as because I own these free and clear, there's I think there's these like there's this niche of people. You know, there's like the Dave Ramsey crowd who who believe in paying off your your primary residence, um, and certain very frugal people that are just like, wow, like that's the best way to invest in real estate. That's like the smartest way to do it. Just buy them all free and clear. Um, yes, that's my wife. Yeah, and 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 I don't I don't necessarily. I, I guess I'll say this. Like you know, I've I've thought about writing that post. Uh, uh, you know, where I where I sort of prove or claim that that paying it off is superior to having loan. But of course, before doing that, I wanted to crunch numbers and do a bunch of research. And so I did so. And the problem the problem was when you crunch numbers, uh, the math doesn't work out right in favor of uh, you know paying cash. Uh, the, the only thing that works out right is you have a you have um, outstanding peace of mind and you're recession proof, right? Like if 2008 hits me and um, you know, a bunch of like rents go way down and unemployment goes way up. Um, I'm not going to get foreclosed on, you know, I'm not going to lose all my properties. My rents are going to go down and I'm going to be annoyed because my cash flow is going to be affected 20, 30, 40%. But by no means will I be in big trouble. But most people who have, you know, if I had 20 mortgages that were 80 or 70 or 60% mortgaged, more than likely I would lose all of those homes in a in a 2008 scenario. Uh, so I think that is probably the major selling point for paying cash for all of your homes. There's this guy Rod Cleef who I'm you know following right now for multifamily properties. He's kind of the the guy that I'm learning from right now. He owned I think 900 homes in um, in Florida when 2008 hit, and he was only 30 percent leveraged. Okay, so I mean, he he had seventy percent equity in the homes. Even though he was thirty percent leveraged, he still lost all of those homes. So like that's how you know bad things about him. Wow, so I'll I didn't say this. realize that. I I listened to Rod Khalif uh, um, from time to time, and I think I read one of his books. That's uh, go ahead. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of. Uh, 
add one more point to this. I've crunched the numbers and I've done the math. And if you, you know, 20% down and you have a mortgage and you invest like that with your 20 homes over the long term versus what I call sort of the I call it the, you know, the, you can do sort of a snowball of paying off your homes and then having all that extra cash flow because you, you know, everything that comes in is pure income instead of, you know, having to pay off your mortgage uh, each month and just keep the, uh, the extra one or 200. When you project that those two methods way into the future, using loans comes out way ahead, you know, using leverage comes out ahead. So um, that, that's just the truth. Uh, but loans, but no loans and paying cash to somebody who's, a, is very conservative just feels better. <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. I really appreciate you, uh, sharing that. Cause I've thought about that a, a lot and going into multi-units as well. Uh, it really surprises me that Rod, I know he, he lost many of those homes. I know he focused on, uh, apartment syndication. Now I didn't realize that he was only 30% leveraged on those, which makes me think, so my own analysis, I had figured that around 50% was fairly safe going into, you know, when times are tough, I guess, when rents go down. Yeah, I think that um, during 2008, probably 80, 90%, 90% of the U.S., you would have been fine with 50%. I think that Florida, you know, you, you could pick like two or three markets and his market in Florida and like, you know, Phoenix and like parts of California lost a lot. Las Vegas, I think, you know, were the locations where that would have happened to you at 30%. Interesting. Okay. So I'm wondering, uh, relative to these houses, uh, to give people a frame of mind, um, would you be up for walking through any rough numbers on a recent sure. deal? Uh, or the, I guess the most recent deal you've had? Yeah. Um, or you can pick one. The recent the recent deals aren't as fresh in my mind, but the, I think the ones I talk about more often, maybe the ones that I, the, the first few that I did okay. are are maybe just because I write about them and talk about them more. My typical deals earlier on, uh, let me talk about those. And, but of course, those are better than the deals that I did at the very end, like you know, house 18, 19, and 20, although I can still give you an idea roughly what I bought them for, are not as good as house one, two, and three. Um, but I'll talk about like house number one, right? Um, house number one in Montgomery, Alabama uh, is a house that I bought for $30,000. Now you're talking about how can this guy be paying cash for his houses? Well, understand, you know, I owned houses in uh, Alexandria, Virginia too. I, you know, I was flipping houses there in the past and uh, I owned a primary residence there. When I flipped house, the down payments on the flips were like more than twice the, pr you know, the price of what I was paying for houses in Montgomery, Alabama. So the, you know, the houses in Montgomery seemed very cheap to me. So anyway, to kind of give you guys a quick overview of what how things look in Montgomery, Alabama, or how they looked in 2013, I bought for $30,000. I put $15,000 into it because I didn't know what I was doing, and I made a lot of mistakes. And, uh, you know, I just, I was trying to do it myself, and I was learning by being hands-on, and I I didn't really have a mentor that was helping me. Um, and and then it rented for about seven fifty. So, you know, forty five thousand in renting for seven fifty. So certainly meeting the one percent rule, um, in fact a lot better than that. It was a very good rental. Um, my second property was forty five thousand and it was moving ready. I didn't even have to vacuum. And that one rented for almost nine hundred. So Wow, that's a good uh, deal. 
you know, that's a very good deal. And my first six properties were, you know, that I, that I bought while I was there in Montgomery over the first uh, 10 months, um, five of them for cash. And one I used a loan on just to, just to kind of see if I could, could use a loan. I actually have the cash, but I'm just kind of like, well, I'll try using a loan. Um, all, I all bought for uh, similar deals. Uh, a couple of them were, you know, like uh, uh, one of them was a short sale, and one was kind of like a foreclosure. Um, and uh, but a lot, but but really, I've gotten a lot just off of the MLS. Oh, really? Uh, That's... And then and then that, and those moved up in price. They got more expensive every year. I've paid as much as I think sixty two thousand is the most I ever paid for one. And then if the least I ever paid, I think was thirty thousand. But I mean, sixty-two thousand, but renting for uh, almost a thousand, or renting for a thousand. That is a that is a good margin. So, do you say like the sixty-two thousand one? One of these you said was moving ready. Are most of these uh, value add though, where you had to also put money into? In order yeah, to almost all almost always value add, but um, almost always less than less than seven thousand dollars, you know, in work. So not, nothing crazy. I communicate often with a wholesaler from Birmingham, mm -hmm. which I found to be an interesting market. I don't know how it is compared to Montgomery, but uh, um, uh, the guy I know there, he he was a, what do you call him? He was a turnkey provider at one point, uh, but now he's gotten into basically offering things as part of a bundle and he still uses those same systems, but you're pretty much going into it before it's been already rehabbed. Yeah. <clears throat> I see um, a lot of things pretty cheap on there that are projected to you know, rent out from seven to 900. Uh, what do you think about that market? Bir Birmingham, have you ever looked at it? I have, um, not extensively, but I, I went down there and Looked around a little bit. Uh, I can t I can say one interesting thing is that. Uh, do you know who Paula Pant is? Uh, no, I do not. Paula Pant is a is a pretty well known blogger. She has a blog called AffordAnything.com. I think maybe some of your listeners might know who she is. But she's um, a well known kind of lifestyle blogger, but also real estate blogger. Uh, and um, anyway, she um, she actually contacted me and decided that she was going to look in some new markets. And so she decided that she was going to come and look at Birmingham and Montgomery and decide between the two as a potential place for, for her to start investing. And so she asked to look at my properties. And so she, I, I gave her addresses to several of my properties. And she looked at Montgomery and she also looked at Birmingham and she had friends in Birmingham. And so in the end, she actually decided that she, she thought Birmingham was a better market. And uh, I don't think that she's invested there yet, but that's like, it was about a year ago she did this. That was a decision that she made. So I, I just thought that was interesting and worth worth pointing out. Uh, definitely. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll uh, uh, look her up and see how she came to that conclusion. But <clears throat> I thought I would bring that up since um, we were talking about Alabama. And you, so relative to these properties you have and uh, your your management of them have you have you settled on a management company or how, how do you work that as a one one set of trusted people now you must have by this point yeah okay yeah i just have i just have a management company uh that i've been working with ever since i started at the beginning and um we've kind of you know grown we've like when we started working together i think that there were a lot of things that i think they didn't you know they didn't necessarily like working with me that much like i was always you know, asking for weird things and I wanted my reports a certain way and I didn't like the way that they did certain things. And then I had a lot of problems with the way that they were operating. And I think that over, you know, the course of time, like from one to 20 properties, we kept um, communicating with each other about what we both needed. And they were willing to, you know, adjust. And eventually, 
you know, we, I guess I, I could say I got everything I needed from them and we're, you know, they're, they're like the perfect, you know, management company for me. Once I moved away, they were able to uh, not only act as a management company for me, but they were able to actually perform my rehabs for me because I was buying properties that were value add. And my managing company was the one that was acting as the person who was sort of finding the contractors and managing them on new properties until they were move-in ready. Because you need somebody to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's So great. that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's something that I, I've written about extensively on my blog, but that's just something that I used my management company for and they were willing to do. They were reluctant at first, but uh, we tried it and it worked out well and uh, we just continued to do it for, for you know, houses uh, seven through 20. Wow. That, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a good good thing to find and hard to find for a lot of people. So it's amazing you get it all in one package. Uh, I'm uh, wondering, Rich, I was going to ask you, so for, uh, I'll say any listeners, but especially uh, younger listeners who might listen in on this uh, in the future, not that I have a huge following yet, but... I got a newsletter with about 65 people and I think the uh, what advice might you give people who have a little money maybe even poor credit uh, starting out to head on a path what what might you tell them So I like this question uh, because I like to be able to, to say this because I think different people have different answers to this question My answer is if you still if you have like don't have money yet, and you, and especially if you have like poor credit and not a lot of money or no money or you're in debt, then you're not ready to invest yet. You know, you're not ready to invest in real estate. Um, I, I say you don't invest in real estate until you're in a financial position of strength. So you need to spend a couple years. Like first of all, like why why are you in the position you're in? Um, fix your credit, save up some money, and get to the right place. But I'd also say there's a lot of things that I want people to do before they invest in real estate. Like you should be, you should pay off your debt. I mean, it's okay. It's okay probably to have like a mortgage on your, on your home. But like I like to pay off debt to include cars, pay off credit cards. You need to, you know, maxing out your IRAs, maxing out your TSP. Uh, I would do all of those things before I'd mess around with real estate. So uh, I guess I'd say that if, you know, if you weren't doing those things and you had bad credit, and and nothing saved up for a down payment. I'd say you're you've got a you've got a long way to go before you invest in real estate. That would be my my take on it. That's a good answer. I like it, and it's a and it's a sound answer. Not one that everybody wants to hear, but it definitely is sound and yeah, crossed my yeah. mind. If you don't, yeah, if you don't want to hear that, there are like plenty of gurus. You can go to Bigger Pockets, and and there are people on that website and there are other gurus as well uh, who will show you you know how to do seller financing or something creative and uh, you know who will claim that you can get rich even if you're in debt you know but but I find that very difficult because you need you need money even if you buy a house for no money down you need money to weather the storms you need money to fix roofs you need money for when the house is vacant you're just not ready yet I, I agree so Thanks for sharing that. Now I want to ask you if you could go back again, one of these, if you could go back in time again, what might you do differently to start out your real estate journey, knowing what you know <laughs> now? Hmm. So I think I would, I hear, I've heard a lot of people say this, but everything that I did, I wish I would have done it sooner. You know, I wish I would have bought properties sooner, you know, like, I bought properties in 2013, you know, I, 
I wish I would have started buying properties in 2000, 2001, 2002, um, and continued buying at a steady rate throughout my younger life. Uh, I could have bought those with 15 year loans that, you know, some of them would have been paid off by now. And, um, I think that would have been the smartest move. So starting earlier is what I wish I would have done. It's fine to use loans as long as you're in a, you know, as long as you're buying responsibly, I like to have the 20% down payment, I like a 15 or a 30 year, uh, fixed rate, uh, buying in the right place, buying cheap enough. Uh, that's what I wish I would have done. Okay. Fair enough. So now that you're thinking about, uh, apartments and multi-units and you have a penchant for paying things off, but you're open to leverage, it sounds like, what do you think, how do you think you're going to go about that? Are you going to, you firmly want to be the guy in charge? Are you thinking about, are, are you trying out, uh, going in with other partners or, or I should say investing more passively? Have you been thinking of doing want- that? I want to own as much of the property as I can. So if I could own a 10 or a 20 unit without involving anybody else, I would just love to do that. If it's going to be a 40 or 60 or 100 unit, uh, I know I can't do that. And uh, you know, I'll have a partner, two partners, five partners uh, on a deal like that. I imagine that in the future... I'll have a mix of all of those things. I imagine that I might own a five unit and a 10 unit on my own, and I might own a 40 unit and a 60 unit between three and four people, and that I'll continue investing in real estate in various forms uh, in the future, you know, through that method that I just described, and maybe even, you know, passively in certain situations um, as my sort of real estate knowledge evolves. Okay. Good, good. I like your approach. Um, um, let me dig in a little bit into your mind on this one. Actually, why why I have the chance? This is a little bit selfish, uh, selfish of me, but I got a friend who yeah. last night we were working. Uh, he was laying tile at a rental, actually, and he owns about three or four rentals. And um, he's a chiropractor by day. He's in his mid fifties now, and he was saying um, he doesn't have the patience, basically, to listen to things and dig down into best ways to invest. And he was pretty much saying, uh, look, I really need to figure out something good to do with this $100,000 that's just sitting in the bank. Uh, Although on this rehab, uh, he's like probably 20,000 in, in terms of just putting stuff on Lowe's and Home Depot credit card. So I think from from listening to you, you'd probably say first pay off that 20,000. But given all the things that you look at, if you were advising someone today with eighty or hundred thousand to do, what do you think would be a good um, investment consideration? So I mean, he, he's a he's a he's a chiropractor, um, and he's got a hundred thousand, and he wants to do something with it, right? Exactly. So, like, you know, I've been thinking about being a, you know, like the active person who goes out and finds a multifamily deal, and then I'd find some, I'd find maybe another a sponsor or an, a few other people to go in with me and we'd be like the sponsors of that deal. And then after that, I need to find a handful of passive investors, right? To bring either the equity or the debt to that deal. For a doctor like that, I'd recommend that he be the, you know, the passive investor in a deal like that. He'd be the passive investor, essentially syndication. A syndication, that sure. He, 
then he passively invests in syndication. I think that's probably one of the best places to put your money. I mean, if he's already, you know, doing everything he should with retirement accounts and he has plenty in normal brokerage accounts and now he's just looking to real estate to diversify and probably also for um, tax benefits. Sure. Good advice. And, and I'm not sure where he's at on the, the other stuff, to be honest. Uh, uh, but I don't think he spent a lot relative to uh, the other things you just said, uh, to be mm-hmm. honest, which brings to mind a recent interview I did with Tom Rutkowski, who uh, is a financial advisor and uh, does the sort of a investing in a permanent whole uh, universal life insurance type of deal. You might have listened to some people talk about using yeah. themselves as a bank. I don't know if you've ever tried that or not, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm against, I'm, a, I'm kind of against all of that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Universal life insurance, whole life policies, any of that. I'm against all of that, but I'm, you know, I'm all for taking advantage of all your, you know, retirement type investing that you can do anything 401k IRA TSP related. And then, uh, I'm all for normal brokerage accounts. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a mutual funds, kind of index uh, investing kind of person. So I keep things simple. Um, and then real estate, like that's that's me, simple. Pretty solid and pretty diversified, it sounds like. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, thanks for your answer on that. So now I want to ask you, getting towards the end here, uh, but I'm sure you read a lot because I know you, you write some. I uh, wonder if you'll share with the listeners a uh, book, if there is one that has inspired or taught you the most about investing or if you have yeah, more than one. Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Definitely, yeah. Uh, you you may have heard me mention it, but I never hear people talk about it, so I like bringing it up. And it is called uh, it's called "Fooled by Randomness" by Nassim Taleb. Have you have you heard of this book? I do not believe I have. Okay, so he's basically "Fooled by Randomness" is the basic premise is kind of like how it's the hidden role of chance in life and in the markets, and it's kind of talking about probably its main premise is that most people don't understand randomness. Most people believe that, you know, the people on Wall Street know what they're doing and are smart and know where the market's going and that that's actually impossible to do. And um, he kind of proves these concepts in his book. I think I learned more about money and investing from this book than any book I've ever read. And I believe I've read, if it's any good, I believe I've read pretty much all of them. So for me, I mean, I'm actually probably more of an investor when it, when it comes to like being a nerd about, you know, real estate and, and money. I'm probably more of a money and investor than I even am a real estate person. I was actually a stockbroker before I came into the military. I worked at Fidelity Investments and, um, and a big part of the reason that I'm, you know, I'm able was able to pay cash for my uh, houses. It's it's not because of a real estate investing prowess. It's because of smart. It, I mean, it's because of being frugal and saving well, but it's also because of investing well. I did not know you were a stockbroker before. That's uh, doubly interesting, but makes perfect sense to me. As I read some of your posts, and I probably should have, but when I delve into them sometime, I, I have asked myself, I'm like, he's always talking about all this money stuff. What is, he's like a Wall Street guy or something. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were a military guy. <laughs> Both, I guess. I'm also, I'm also a military guy. <laughs> and a ninja. You do construction too? 
<laughs> it's crazy. That's uh, I would definitely look up this book. It sounds very interesting, uh, especially coming with yeah, that I'd experience. For everybody out there, yeah, buy it. It's it's worth reading. It gives a great perspective on randomness and on chance and how that applies to life, money, gambling, the markets, everything. Okay. For gambling, I'll definitely look it up. <laughs> After my visit last year to, I went to a, my niece got married in Vegas and we went there and I'd never been there. I'd driven by it. Uh, but I just got in a role. My wife, of course, said this much money is all for gambling. Because I think as a kid, I was probably addicted. I used to play a lot of poker and stuff like that. So I haven't gambled for years. Yeah. Went in there. Right. And I was on a blackjack table and I just couldn't lose. And I said, well, this is the way to go. This is, how can you lose? I wasn't counting cards or anything, but uh, right. uh, of course I lost it all back. So we probably broke Yeah, you actually, can, you actually can lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out you can lose. And to prove it. In fact, it's actually a mathematical certainty that you will eventually lose. Okay. That makes sense to me. So... Uh, to help me get over this kick. So I started watching videos about blackjack. I came back and was sort of really into it. And then my wife and I had a flight cross country. So we were flying from Boston to somewhere out West. And whatever airline we're on, you know, they have the ones where you can choose games. You're watching stuff. It might be like uh, JetBlue. And so we were playing it, me against her. And, and I had, you know, been analyzing, uh, learning all these strategies well, well, she tripled her money on that on over those two or three hours where we're playing separately, uh, yeah. just randomly, and pretty much proved to me that uh, I was not going to be a blackjack guy in the future. <laughs> right. So, I think in my mind, yeah, in my mind, like throughout my life, I've come out ahead on gambling, but I think in reality that's not true. I think that we have this way of keeping this mental account of when we win and when we lose. And we tend to just minimize when we lose um, and exaggerate, exaggerate when we win. But in my mind, I'm way ahead. You know? <laughs> I, doubt, I, doubt that's, I doubt that's true. Yeah. Hey, well, thanks for sharing that. So you got any uh, last thoughts or advice uh, you, you might uh, want to cover before you head into the remainder of your night and I get prepared for a long day of Super Bowl readiness? All right. Um, I'm going to talk about appreciation real quick because I haven't given my appreciation rant yet. Okay. Um, I like to talk about this on my website. I like to talk about this to any willing audience. It kind of goes in line with what you talked about earlier. What's your advice, the mistake that people make? It has to do with high cost of living areas too. And, and one of the, the problems in buying of a high cost of living area, and that is the myth of appreciation. And I'll call it a myth. Um, a lot of times... People will say, like, you know, I have this rental in, you know, San Diego, and I realize I'm losing money on it, you know, but that's okay because <laughs> I'm going to make that money in appreciation. Um, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm even on this, I'm even on this property. I don't make any money, but I don't lose any, but I imagine I'm going to make money in appreciation. All right. I'm investing here and not necessarily going to cash flow, but I imagine I'll get appreciation in the future. That is a horrible idea, and in all of those situations, you're lying to yourself, and you're probably in for losing a lot of money. Um, appreciation happens in a very random way, kind of like the book I was talking about uh, by Nassim Taleb, and it happens in these like spurts that you're never, you never know when or where it's going to happen. Now, it happens more often in, in certain cities, 
like Honolulu, right, in Los Angeles and San Francisco. But even in those cities, it still happens like really big for three or four years. And then it's like flat for a long time. And then it might even drop, right? And then it happens really big again. And you have to be in at the right time to take advantage of that. And if you're on your military assignment and you buy a house in Honolulu and you think you're going to sell it in three years and, and benefit from appreciation, you could really screw yourself bad because that could be that could be the year that it goes down 20%, you know, mm-hmm. or two years or three years. Or even if it stays flat, you stand to lose a lot of money on all the fees of buying and selling. Um, it's just a bad idea. I never count on appreciation. Now, D- Doug Norman, uh, again, the friend that you interviewed, he's owned two different houses in Honolulu over the past like 30 years. And he's done all the math. And he's made between 3 and 4% a year. So it's nothing amazing, right? It's not like he's made a compound interest of 6 or 7 or 8 or 9%. It's like 3 or 4%, which is pretty much the same as everywhere else. So that's kind of the last lesson I wanted to re- uh, leave your listeners with. Yeah, I appreciate that. And it's good. I've... I've um... I've heard it enough times now from guys, not quite as eloquently as you just put it, but it definitely uh, stands out in my mind to not count on appreciation at all, ever. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, if it happens, like you can tell people that you're awesome and that you're super smart and good for you. And you can even say that Rich Carey's stupid, but like that's <laughs> luck. That is luck and good for you. I, you know, you lucked out. Don't count on it. Count on cash flow analysis, right? Cash flow is a sure thing. Gotcha. And uh, appreciation is not. Well, hey, uh, thanks, Rich. You you covered a lot of ground. I'll probably go back and uh, do some notes on this. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I'm wondering how our listeners can get in touch with you to learn more about your business mm-hmm. and you know future investing opportunities, maybe. Oh, sure. Yeah. You. Um, I think you mentioned at the beginning, but I'm at richonmoney.com. Um, so www.richonmoney.com. That is the, uh, the best place to reach me. And then, um, I'm fine taking emails from people. So as you can send me an email at richcarry at gmail.com, uh, richcarry, C-A-R-E-Y at gmail.com. If you want to reach out to me. Well, thanks Rich. And awesome domain name, by the way. Really glad you got that. <laughs> I always think thanks. that when I yeah. go there. Uh, I hang out. I'm going to hang on to that one. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think that was a good, a good find. Uh, uh, very, very good. So, hey, uh, again, I really uh, have enjoyed our talk and getting to know you a little better. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, thanks for your service and uh, continuing that over the next year and a half. I can't imagine you'll get out before 20. Hopefully not at this point. <laughs> a few benefits nope, to come. <laughs> I'm going to get out probably sometime around August 1st of 2020. Okay, great. Well, uh, good luck to you and we'll be in touch in the future. Uh, thanks hey, thanks a lot. for the opportunity. No, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Take care, Rich. We'll talk later. Have a good night. You too. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. And I'm proud to be an American. Stay.
cause there ain't no doubt 